This week, the government published its midterm review into the BBC's governance and regulations, which I thought didn't amount to much more than providing another opportunity for the Tories to kick the BBC over impartiality. However, Lucy Fraser, the Culture Secretary, stubbed her toe when she went on a media round, calling into question the BBC's impartiality. Kay Burley on Sky News pointed out that perception of bias isn't evidence of it and asked the Culture Secretary to provide some hard facts. She could not do so. This did not stop the Prime Minister backing up his Culture Secretary. The review also calls for Ofcom and the BBC's board to have a greater role in overseeing the corporation's complaints procedure. Ofcom is, of course, chaired by a Conservative peer, Lord Grade, and one of the most important and influential BBC board members is Sir Robbie Gibb, appointed by the government. He is a former BBC editor who then became Conservative Prime Minister Theresa May's Director of Communications. In former Culture Secretary Nadine Doris's book, she claims Sir Robbie Gibb interfered in the process of appointing the chair of Ofcom. A journalist who has been doggedly trying to find out the truth of the matter is Alan Restbridger, former Guardian editor and now editor at Prospect magazine, in the latest edition of which he's written an article with the striking headline, How the Government Captured the BBC. Alan Rusbridger, welcome to the podcast. Uh, before we get on to your article, I want to ask you specifically about this concept of impartiality, um, which is being fought over in various places at the moment with particular intensity. Is it a vital issue, particularly for the BBC? Is impartiality or the attempt to it still vitally important? Uh, I think it is, yes. I mean, I'm, we can get into the, you know, the price precise phraseology of what's meant by due impartiality, which I understand to mean you don't have to have a spokesman from each side on, on every issue, on every programme. You can measure it over time. But clearly the BBC is measured and supposed to be different from, say, Fleet Street, which is makes no pretense of impartiality, and that's a condition of its licence fee. And I think it's really important from the point of view of people who pay that licence fee and who want a different kind of news provider. But is the idea of impartiality more contested now, I think? And for example, I mean, your former newspaper, The Guardian, has had considerable difficulties with the issue of transgender. A lot of people are now wondering how they're going to deal with the Trump presidential run-up where a proven liar is... Uh, who seems to have little regard for the facts, is is up against an opponent who at least has a better track record of sticking to the facts. And then trying to be impartial in those circumstances is very difficult. Do you think that this is a particularly difficult moment to assert both the aim and the possibility of due impartiality? I think it is a difficult moment. Um, I think it's been weaponized maybe by both sides, but certainly by the right. And I think we live in a more polarized society anyway, in which people delight in in using the so-called culture wars to uh, determine which side you're on. And then you've got the complications of social media and so on and so on. I think it's good to begin by acknowledging that it is such a complex thing. When Lucy Fraser, the culture minister, was touring the studios, really failing to put her finger on what impartiality was, I went back and read the document that the government has produced, and there's a very good report there by a, an outfit called Jigsaw, 
which uh, the, the government itself cites, which stretches to 92 pages as they try to pin what impartiality is and how to do it. And I think what's lamentable is this finger-pointing and this attempt to pretend it's a really easy and obvious subject. It's not. It's a, it's a very complicated subject. And to reduce it to, well, I, I think the BBC is biased because of what I believe means nothing. Well, she signally uh, failed to provide evidence, didn't she? But the perception matters because, of course, if people do not believe that the BBC is impartial, then they can discount its reporting on the news where it's inconvenient to their worldview. So it's desperately important that the BBC news is still believed, not least about Gaza and, and, and elsewhere. So it's an issue that matters. I agree, it completely matters. And the good news is that despite the majority of newspapers uh, more or less every day uh, attacking the BBC and claiming that it's not trustworthy and uh, it is biased. The surveys show that overwhelmingly people still trust the BBC. On some measures, it's two to one, the measures of trust of the BBC to the nearest newspaper. So, um, you, you know, I think some of this has got through and it's remarkable that, that people still do trust the BBC so much. Broadly, people still think it's uh, an accurate and trusted purveyor of news which is not what a significant section of the Conservative Party thinks or has thought for some time. And your article in Prospect has this rather, well, remarkable headline, How the Government Captured the BBC, and you say a right-wing cabal, largely unaccountable, is waging war on the principles that made our public broadcaster great, it must not succeed. Who is in this cabal, Alan Rusbridger? Well, first of all, it's important to step back and realise that almost a third of the now unitary board, so there's just one board overlooking the BBC, is appointed by the government, if you include the chair. I think that will come as news to many people. So the, the story we tell ourselves about the BBC is that it, it isn't a state broadcaster. It's a, a public service broadcaster, and there should be a distinction there, and that it is free from control by the government. Now, what has happened, and I'm sure we'll get on to discussing the particulars of Robbie Gibb, but they appointed, and we'll come on to who they is, they appointed a, a person to, who has ended up being the chief arbiter of impartiality, someone who, until a year before he was appointed, was the chief spokesman for the Tory prime minister. Now, he himself admits he's not remotely an impartial figure. He's a very partisan this is figure. Robbie, this is Robbie this Gibb. This is Robbie Gibb, Sir Robbie Gibb, to give him his full title. Um, so he has been put onto the BBC board by the government. And when you say by the government, it has been reported that he was nominated by a, not, not a sort of committee of... of <laughs> of the wise and the good, but by a, a guy called Dougie Smith, who is a fixer. Even the Telegraph says you know, he, he regards this his job as to get Tories into key positions. He's a mysterious figure because when you ring Downing Street and ask about him, they deny any knowledge of him. They refer you to the central office, the, the, the campaign headquarters of the Tory party, who also deny any knowledge of him. So he's completely unaccountable, this figure. They, i.e. the Tory party, in the, in the shape of Dougie Smith, has got their guy, who is not, a, not an impartial figure, onto the BBC. And uh, I don't want to bore your listeners with the intricate governance of the BBC, but 
there's a very strange governance system now in which all these key dis- decisions are taken by a small committee of four people, the Editorial Guidelines and Standards Committee. Who's on that, that committee? Well, they include Tim D- Davey and Deborah Turnis. So that's strange because they're marking their own homework, if you see what I mean. They're, if there's a complaint about the BBC, they would be responsible for the content that is being complained about. So that's odd. There is Sir Nick Sirota, who was um, a very distinguished curator and uh, director of the Tate Gallery. And then there's Sir Robbie Gibb. So R- Sir Robbie Gibb is the only person with editorial experience who sits in ultimate judgment on BBC impartiality. That's a very strange um, uh, state of affairs. Well, if we deal with Robert Gibb, I don't think there's any suggestion that he's anything other than a right-wing Tory, although those who worked for him when he was BBC editor said he was pretty impartial. But he said in The Telegraph, and you quoted in your article, this is Robbie Gibb. The BBC has been culturally captured by the woke-dominated group, think, of some of its own staff. There is a default left-leaning attitude. Once the gold standard of impartial, fair and accurate news, BBC journalists are increasingly letting their political preferences show. So we know what Robbie Gibb believes, and the question is whether he's used his position to further that sort of analysis. You and your article uh, start, or not so much start, but, but focus on, Something said, uh, published in 2004 by an organization briefly, which briefly flourished called the New Frontiers Foundation, which I think was run by Dominic Cummings. And you quoted a saying in 2004, there are three structural things that the right need to get to happen in terms of communication. One, the undermining of the BBC's credibility. Two, the creation of a Fox News equivalent talk radio shows, blogs, etc., to shift the centre of gravity, and the third, the end of the ban on TV political advertising. Now, the third hasn't come about. You could certainly argue the first two have. So do you think that this outline, this strategic, if you like, analysis about how to change the centre of gravity in the BBC is something that has underpinned, if you like, all the Conservative administration since then and is still being actively pursued? Well, within months of Dominic Cummings getting into 10 Downing Street, two curious things happened. One was that a review was set up into the future of public service broadcasting. I've tried to get the minutes of that review. Um, they refused to release them. And that included Robbie Gibb as on its membership. I think Andrew Neil and Samir Shah, who is the... Samir Shah, no, was an interesting group of people. Yeah. Um, yes. But we don't know what they talked about, we don't know what they said, and we don't know what about them. they made any recommendations. In fact, as you were saying, we know nothing about them. We know nothing about that group or what they recommended, but it was set up by Oliver Dowden, who is said to be a friend of Robbie Gibb, uh, who was then Culture Secretary. The next thing that happened was that Boris Johnson announced the two people he wanted to be chair of the BBC and the chair of Ofcom. Now, that was wrong in two ways. First of all, if we're going to maintain this pretense that the BBC and its regulator are independent of government, you shouldn't have the Prime Minister saying, well, I want my old mates in Fleet Street to be uh, running these organisations. By the way, those old mates were, first of all, Charles Moore, the ex-editor of the Daily Telegraph, and Paul Dacre, who still runs the Daily Mail. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what do you think of them, about them as Fleet Street editors? And some would argue they were very good editors. Neither would pretend to be impartial. These are highly partisan papers. They had no experience of impartial broadcasting. 
Charles Moore had been fined for refusing to pay his BBC licence fee at one point. Paul Dacre had made his loathing of the BBC politics uh, well known. And so it was a very deliberate act to name these two people to go in and effectively sort out the BBC. And the second way in which it was wrong is that by signalling the people you wanted to do these jobs, a lot of good people who would have applied didn't apply. I've spoken to some of them. Uh, Only nine people applied for the Ofcom job, which was one of the biggest regulators in in Britain. Because they had no confidence that this was an open board. I mean, they thought it was fixed beforehand. The same fix of putting Robbie Gibb on the BBC board, they thought, well, we can capture both these organisations by getting our own people in to chair them. Now, long story short, Paul Dacre was deemed unappointable and... uh, Charles Moore withdrew and uh, Richard Sharp, um, a major Tory donor, uh, got the BBC job. And eventually the shortlist for the Ofcom job, uh, funnily enough, out of all the people who could have applied, came down to a shortlist of two, both of whom were Conservative peers. Now, <laughs> So they capture or attempt to capture the chairmanship of the BBC. They then capture its regulator and they then ensure that the BBC's licence fee is uh, not increased so that its value over 10 years has gone down by at least 30%. So you're squeezing it in one hand, you're putting political pressure on the other. And then you have a problem just to relate to the board, that, that just to perhaps in parentheses talk about the board. In 2016, I think the BBC had a unitary board. Now, in the, all, all ways of running or regulation, the BBC run into trouble. But when you had two separate boards, a board of management and a board of governors, there was a possibility when there was a real issue of public argument between them that that would be ventilated. I think with a single board, where there are only two representatives of programme makers on that board and one journalist, the director, including the director of journalism. She is surrounded by a board which is largely ignorant of journalism and she's got sitting officer Robbie Gibb. And she has a director general, I think in many ways a very good director general, but has no experience of journalism. So the arguments that are going to happen are hardly likely to be ventilated, are they? The public interest arguments are not going to be ventilated. They will be settled in a, in a small board, and even, as you were saying, a smaller, the, the, the particular subgroup of the board, four people, which looks after editorial and complaints matters. So it's not likely that we're going to have a number of challenging journalistic viewpoints against Robbie Gibb, because there aren't any other journalists to do the challenging apart from the director of news. Uh, You put your finger on it. That's exactly the problem. And what made me embark on this journey was a story in Nadine Doris's book that Robbie Gibb had conspired with, I think is the only words you could use, with Dougie Smith, our old friend Dougie Smith, uh, who we've established is accountable to no one, and his wife, Manira Mirza, who was also working at Number 10. They had Nadine Doris in and said, we don't think you should appoint Michael Grade to this job, one Conservative peer. We think it should be the other Conservative peer, a guy called still Stephen Gilbert, because we think we could control him. They, they didn't say that, but that's what Nadine Doris interpreted their motives. Uh, when she refused, somebody at number 10, she she's named Dougie Smith and he hasn't denied it, switched her advice to say, no, we want the Tory central office guy. It's the enormity of this, I think, escapes a lot of people. It's not just they took the piece of paper away, as it were, and didn't put it in the front of his They substituted another piece of paper. Yeah, but that's her claim. And I put it, I tried to put it to Dougie Smith. I said, look, this is a very serious claim. I went to Downing, to Downing Street, the Cabinet Office, and then I went to 
the, the Tory campaign headquarters, and nobody denied it. All they said is, look, here's the list of people who work at number 10. And he, he's not on that list. In your article, you say uh, about Robbie Gibb, it is beyond obvious that it was quite improper for the director of a regulated organisation, the BBC, to try, let alone in concert with others in the Tory party politics at the centre of government, to influence who became his organisation's regulator. So you are tying directly Robbie Gibb to Dougie Smith, who you believe switched the recommendation, or Nadine Doris says, switched the recommendation about the new regulator. Well, that's what Nadine Doris claims. She's very specific about it. I've spoken to her. And all I can say is I've put it to everybody possible, and nobody's come back and said, no, that's wrong. So I think we're entitled to say that's what happened. So... And again, there's no no question, uh, as your article makes clear, of Robbie Gibbs sort of changing his political um, attitudes. There's a quote from a speech he made to the 2020 Taxpayers Alliance in which he described himself as, quote, a long-standing conservative. I'm not a Chris Patton apologist conservative. I'm a proper Thatcherite conservative. And, of course, according to the Telegraph, uh, Robbie Gibbs uh, continues to or has been a lifelong Brexiteer. Conservative governments, Labour governments, they all appoint people often they think they're quite sympathetic to them. But the hope is, or the expectation is, when they take on the job of being uh, running the BBC, that they set their politics aside. As I said, people who worked for Robbie Gibb when he was BBC editor said largely that he did put his politics aside. What you're saying very clearly, and the evidence trail suggests, is that in his role as a non-executive director of the BBC, he hasn't separated the two things. And actually, they are joined together almost at the hip. First of all, I spoke to people who said that Robbie Gibb interferes, has interfered at story level. So he rings up people and says that that story is bad. What, what's this story doing? Um, again, uh, I put that to the BBC. No one denied that. And then there was, of course, this famous moment when the BBC was about to make a key appointment in news. And Robbie Gibb texted uh, the head of news, Fran Unsworth, and said, you mustn't appoint this woman, a woman called Jess Bremer from Huffington Post, this would shatter the relations with the government. Uh, yeah, but he, by the way, he denies using those exact words, but I'm told that the, the, the original report in the FT was highly accurate. Now, what is the government's appointee on the BBC board doing saying, this is going to upset the government, you should appoint someone else? I mean, if that's not capture or attempted capture, I don't know what is. So the... This business where he goes around interfering at story level and then trying to prevent appointments because it's going to upset the government is, I can't think of any parallel in, in the BBC's past when this would have been true. No, I can remember in the past, um, lots of times when the press spokesman for number 10, Bernard Ingham, of course, initially, would be out, well, shout at you, actually, rather like but he'd shout at you. Uh, equally, we can remember Alistair Campbell getting very het up, appearing famously on Channel 4 News to denounce the BBC and so on. But these were not people, of course, who were on the BBC boards. This was political warfare conducted in the open. The parallel would be putting Alistair Campbell onto the BBC board a year after leaving office. You know, of course you expect, and uh, you know, I'm told Robbie Gibb did this when he was working for Mrs. Uh, for Theresa May, and, and you'd expect him to, you know, from six o'clock onwards, he's on the phone saying, uh, burning the ear of, of the, whoever's editing the particular program. That's his job. Uh, but the difference is then putting him on the board and then expecting him to behave entirely impartially. It, it's almost superhuman to expect that of anybody.
Uh, it, it so happens, I think, that Sir Robbie was appointed for three years and that his term as board member for England, that's as a government appointee, ends in May 2024, i.e. 4-5 and start. So presumably the government can, if it wishes, renominate him. I don't think there's anything to stop him being serving another term, which if you think that you may not be the government in after the next election, might from their point of view be a sensible thing to do. Are you saying that he's unfit to be reappointed? I think it was a, a bad mistake to appoint him. And uh, I, I think that the government would be wise um, not to reappoint him because the danger is that the, the Labour come in and say, we need our guy there. Um, you know, we've, we've read about Robbie Gibb and we, we need our guy there. Uh, and then you're going down the road that ends to what, what's been happening in Poland, you know, where, where you've had a gigantic dust up over the government uh, appointing people to the, to the state broadcaster. And, and Donald Tusk has come in as the new prime minister and is, is trying to turf them all off. That's the last thing the BBC needs. And I, I think people ought to just concede that this was a you know this was a, a bad and unwise appointment by this mysterious fixer in number at number 10 and they should appoint somebody who has got a sophisticated understanding of what impartiality means and try and stop the BBC being used as a political football and they need more journalists at the top on the board because at the moment there's a lot of successful businessmen there who know all about or know a lot about uh, well, business digitization, the BBC's commercial future, but Vince, in the view of some people, there aren't enough people at the top who understand about journalism. Is that your view? I agree. If you look at the BBC board now, there, there are people who have been very successful in their own walk of life, including, you know, I think many more businessmen than would have sit on sat on a board in the past. It was almost as if the chair that was Richard Sharp was anticipating that, you know, at some point the BBC is going to have to behave in a more business-like fashion and the licence fee is not going to be there forever, as though it was preparing the, the BBC for a different kind of existence. But I, I think it's the wrong board to be making judgments about these highly nuanced issues like impartiality. So, you know, again, if, if Labour were wise, they would come in and look again at I think all these governance arrangements and certainly how the these key appointments of both at Ofcom and the BBC are made. I want to raise just one final thing with Robbie Gibb. And of course, if he would like to come onto this podcast, I'd be delighted to talk to him about these things. It is his role um, in the Jewish Chronicle. He was uh, essentially chaired, uh, as far as I understand it, or helped the put the new administration of Jewish Chronicle into place, whatever that is, it's quite clear to know whether he still owns it or did ever own it or was simply representing people. But the Jewish Chronicle has attacked the BBC over the coverage of Gaza in the most extraordinary way. Last week's edition, I think, uh, Melanie Phillips, Times columnist, of course, BBC on the Moral Maze, called the BBC the Hamas Broadcasting Corporation. I mean, the Hamas Broadcasting Corporation... And then uh, the editor-in-chief of the Jewish Chronicle, Jake Wallace-Simmons, um, said about the BBC, um, the BBC's Israelophobia is out of control. Its distrust of the Jewish state is bordering on pathological. So, Robbie Gibb, is there intimately connected with the Jewish Chronicle, responsible as a BBC non-executive director for impartiality. And the, an organ, uh, the administration, at least, of the Jewish Chronicle, it has helped to bring to bear, are saying these things about the BBC. 
I mean, it's uh, it's quite extraordinary to me. Is it to you? It's bizarre. I mean, first of all, if you go to company's house, Robbie Gibb is named as the 100% owner of the Jewish Chronicle. He is the sole director. But I don't think he's got the money. So he is clearly there as the front, if you like, for somebody who does own the Jewish Chronicle. We don't know who does own the Jewish Chronicle now. So that, that was all pretty controversial within the Jewish community. The Jewish Chronicle then, under its editor, Jake Wallace-Simons, launched a vehement campaign against the BBC. This was before the war in Gaza, in which they tried to get a parliamentary inquiry into bias at the BBC. And since October the 7th, it, it has been scathing uh, in its criticism of the BBC. So there is Robbie Gibb, with his, you know, Sir, Sir Impartial, um, chairing this organization that is the BBC's most vehement critic and sitting on the BBC board and sitting on the editorial guidelines committee, which, and again, I went to the BBC to check this. I said, you know, where will the complaints about the BBC's coverage end up? And they said, oh, well, it'll end up with this committee. So he, as a apparent owner of this organization, which is vehemently critical of the BBC, will be making judgments about impartiality. I mean, it is, it's an Alice in Wonderland world. Well, Alan Rush, thank you for uh, talking to us. Also, your article is in Prospect uh, this week. And of course, you have your own podcast, don't you? Tell me briefly about your podcast this week. Uh, we've got an old colleague of yours, Roger Mosey, and uh, Dorothy Byrne, who was the head of news at Channel 4. And uh, we're picking over this. And I have to say, Roger, as a distinguished um, BBC hand, it, you know, takes a very, you know, judicious view of all this. And, you know, his view is, I mean, he says, you know, all this is clearly wrong, but the BBC has been around for a long time and it will survive. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure it will. But uh, I think it's um, the, the, there's something happening at the moment which is new and which I you know, if I were the incoming Labour government, I would want to stop. Alan Rasprisha, thank you very much. Thank you. Now, remember, all our paid members will receive the podcast almost a week in advance. So, if you want to hear it first, please sign up now to patreon.com forward slash beepwatch. You'll also receive my blog every week. You get all that for a total of one ninety nine per month. I hope you think it's a bargain. That's it for this week. And as you know, this podcast is presented by me, Roger Bolton, and it's produced by Kate Dixon. The sound is by Dave Kitto, and special thanks to Quinn Genty. It's a good egg production. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>